Uncommon Sense Advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. In my continuing experiments to try to be interesting but not repetitious, I've written 10 short, short stories. They're each maybe three minutes long on average, in which um, I talk about somebody who is what I call a soloist, who basically is going through life mostly by themselves because they just don't fit in. Anyway, I hope you'll enjoy it. The first one's called Average Jane. In school, teachers focused on the brilliant and on the slow, so Jane was pretty much ignored. Jane's classmates liked the good-looking kids and made fun of the ugly ones. They barely noticed Average Jane. At her 50th high school reunion, most people couldn't even recall who she was. In college, while Jane wanted to date, she felt uncomfortable trying to stand out, being perky, dressing sexily, and so on. So she was pretty much ignored. When Jane applied for jobs, her resume didn't stand out from the pile. So the best she could get was rent-a-car reservationist, where she chatted little with customers or coworkers. She was forgettable. Jane liked hiking and joined a meet-up hiking group, but even when she approached fellow hikers, the conversation quickly petered out and they'd move on. Jane did have some modest romantic relationships, but sooner than later, the other person would end it. And when Jane asked for an explanation, they said things like, there's nothing wrong with you, there's just not quite the spark. Jane thought that maybe she could be seen as special if she worked with disabled people. So she volunteered at a group home for people with intellectual disabilities, but she had difficulty helping them and got little recognition for her efforts. So after a few Saturdays, she quit apologetically. Next, she tried volunteering at an animal shelter. She and the doggies loved each other, but that didn't feel enough. She said, am I going to be ignored, not cared about by anyone except dogs and my parents who are now dead? At the end of her 50th high school reunion, she trudged back to her car gently closed its door and cried. Would she die unexceptional, unrecognized? She sat, trying to concoct a basis for hope. She considered dolling herself up, puffing herself up, bubbling herself up, but in the end decided that the wisest course was self-acceptance. Jane spent her last decade in relative contentment by reading, journaling, gardening, hiking, painting, watching TV, petting dogs at the shelter, writing letters to the few people who had shown even modest interest in her and volunteering at a suicide hotline. A go-getter might have done more to improve her lot, but average Jane had just average drive. Many people have done worse. The second story is called Shield. When I walked down the street, people averted their eyes, understandably. Sternness was etched in my face. They didn't realize that I wasn't stern, but rather was always worried about doing the right thing, about not offending. I got that from my father, who would yell even at minor infractions. I wanted a facelift, but could never afford one, so I wrote this note to local plastic surgeons. Dear doctor, whomever, people avoid me because I look mean. A facelift would really help, but I, I'll never be able to afford it, partly because of my looks. The best job I've gotten is security guard, and on the side, I clean people's backyards. Would you be willing to give me a facelift in exchange for yard work? Signed, Noah Bonner. One of the plastic surgeons agreed to see me. 
At the appointment, she said that Botox would solve the problem without surgery, and she would do it in exchange for yard work. In more good news, she said that when the Botox wears out, quote, she said, I'll tune you up. The Botox got me better reactions from people, but I found myself not wanting them. I again was always worried I'd make people angry, so I let the Botox fade, which restored my shield of sternness. The next story is called Tits Tommy. Tommy was always disliked because he was a know-it-all. He couldn't help it. He was smart and not restrained enough to hide it, so the kids hated him. He tried to compensate by being ever so nice. He was careful to not hurt anyone's feelings. He did all sorts of favors for kids, even though they were rarely reciprocated. Indeed, the nicer Tommy was, the more the kids took advantage of him, took him for a patsy. They felt fine about ignoring him, asking him for more favors, and treating him insensitively, even cruelly. For example, as a preteen, he got chubby, and the kids called him Tits Tommy. He responded as his parents taught him, turn the other cheek. Alas, that was seen as a sign of weakness, so the taunts grew into his getting beaten up often for some mock offense, such as, why are you looking at my girlfriend? In high school, Tommy decided that the way to attract girls was to be very polite, tactful, buying them little presents, fully respectful of their sexual reticence. The popular girls saw that as unattractive. The only girl who liked him was Rita, who, because she wasn't attractive, was starving for kindness. Despite seeing again and again that being nice results in less respect, Tommy went through life being Mr. Nice Guy, perhaps just because he was wired that way or because he felt it's worth the opprobrium in exchange for doing what's right. Alas, even Tommy's wife and children took advantage of him. The nicer he was, the more indifferent, indeed more disrespectful of him. He tried hard to please them, but increasingly, with ever greater confidence, they treated his wants as irrelevant. So as Tommy aged, he grew ever more dispirited. I just don't fit on this earth, he said. Alas, unlike in the movies, he never met anyone who treasured him for his kindness, nor was he rewarded by his employers or society. Tommy was nice even to the nurses who injected him with chemotherapy and then the euthanasia drug. Perhaps the only time he showed strength was in his will. He left all his assets to charity. The next story is called A Psychiatrist's Last Hour. The patient sobbed, Thank you for understanding how tough it's been for me since she died. I thought, It's been a year and it's a rabbit. Every time I think about moving forward, I think of carrots and I cry. I understand. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Is there anything you want to remember from today's session? I don't know, Dr. Michaels. Is it normal to grieve so long? I would have liked to ask. Might that be an excuse to keep from looking for a job? But I felt she'd just get defensive, and so I just said, well, we all process differently. For homework, is there something you'd like to try? I should try to get a job, and this time I will. I doubted it. Uh, can you refill my prescription? It's time to cut down to 10 milligrams. I really need 20. I'm so stressed. Dr. Michaels, please. I was too tired to fight. All right, the last prescription at 20. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Michaels. See you next week. She straightened her silk skirt and strode out. I bowed my head. I stared at my front door. Why so ornate? Who am I trying to impress? When I opened the door, I got my usual warm welcome from my doggy Tarzan, who leapt not through the trees, but onto me. 
When I dropped into my recliner, Tarzan on my lap, I thought, why do I do all this? Killed myself in school, in college, in med school, in residency, and work really hard now? I don't feel I'm making much difference. Why have I done it all? So I can live in a nice place? What does it all mean? Does anything mean anything? Oh, I have to appeal those denials of coverage. Excuse me, Tarzan. I trudged to my desk. He followed and rested his head on my foot. While writing to Etna, Tarzan vomited a grass-filled blob. I sighed. Door of parenthood. I blotted, rinsed, repeated, sprayed, washed hands, and returned to begging Etna. But Tarzan vomited again the next day, so it was off to the vet. The vet said it's probably nothing. I asked, no need for tests? Oh, it's not worth the discomfort and expense of an endoscopy. You're a doc, you know. Most times it's a horse, not a zebra. But the next two days, Tarzan kept vomiting, and without the reassuring grass. The vet said, I still think it's nothing, but let's do the endoscopy. All normal. I'm sure Tarzan will be fine. But two more days of vomiting, and I made an appointment with a good specialist vet. The first opening was two weeks out. David, there is a lesion here. Somehow the other vet missed it. We should do a whole body scan. Stage four. Thank you, doctor. At least now I know. Back home, I cradled Tarzan. I won't sue the first vet. I've made mistakes, too. Fighting my shaking hand, I opened my book safe, pulled out the fentanyl vial, and helped my best friend avoid end-stage cancer's pain. I filled the syringe again, this time completely, put it aside, and wrote, Dear fellow psychiatrists, I worried my way through life, stressed my way through life, to try to become a decent psychiatrist. I traded most pleasure for accomplishment. I do not think it was worth it. It may be that I wasn't a good enough psychiatrist, but it seems that many of us don't accomplish enough for all our time, brains, and effort. Too often our drugs and, quote, procedures are mere palliatives. They're like adding more oil to a smoking car engine. They help only for a while, and the engine still often blows. It's no shame to leave psychiatry. Don't throw more good time and effort after bad. Even being a good cafe owner will likely bring more pleasure to your customers and employees. Just use your good brain and drive and be kind. Signed, David Michaels. Now I'll put myself at peace. When David didn't show up at work the next two days, nor answer his page, his boss, the hospital's chief of psychiatry, called the police, which found David in the note. The officer sent it to David's boss, who posted it on websites for aspiring psychiatrists. The next story is called Norma. I guess I'll let you know what you're listening to. You're listening to How to Do Life with Marty Nemco, and this is an experiment in which I'm reading 10 short, short stories, each readable in about two or three minutes, about what I'm calling this collection soloists, about people who basically are going through life alone, not quite fitting in, or not at all fitting in. This next one's called Norma. Uh, I'll be back in a moment. Stay with me. The announcer has to say something. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Thank you for staying with me. 
Norma graduated from Leviathan University with a major in psychology and $162,000 in student debt. And ironically, she took a job as an accounts receivable clerk in Leviathan's bursar's office. Her job was to send dunning notices to students who were late in paying their student loans and to respond to the in-person pleas for forbearance. It pained Norma to see the endless line of graduates and dropouts who couldn't afford to pay. She thought back to when she was in high school and was seduced by Leviathan's marketing materials that implied that its graduates are likely to get a well-paying job and explicitly blaring that misleading statistic that college graduates earn a million dollars more. But she had to put such thoughts aside. Her job was to get the alumni and dropouts to pay. So to student after student, she said, I'm sorry. And she emailed letter after a letter that said, your account is past due. To avoid additional penalties, please remit the balance due within 10 days. But there was a last straw. A student begged, I want a job where I can make a difference, but I'm saddled with all this debt, so I had to take a job as an insurance salesman. I'm not cut out for that. I'm cut out for helping people. I've lived with five roommates, and I still can't afford both my rent and my student loan. On impulse, Norma simply zeroed out the student's account and said, your student loan is now paid in full. Go make a difference. The student sputtered, but, but Norma waved her away. Just go. Within an hour, her boss came in. Zeus, the computer program, just kicked out a file. Mary Lafleur. Yesterday, she had a balance of $107,955, and today it's zero. Norma lied. I have no idea. It must be a computer glitch. That bought Norma a little time, but she knew that even if she claimed it was a typing error, she'd be out of a job within a day or even go to jail. So she decided to do as much Robin Hooding as she could in her remaining time. The next person in line was a Hulk who came to Leviathan on a football scholarship, but after a year was told now that there were better players and he lost his scholarship. He told Norma, if Leviathan hadn't given me the scholarship, I would have gone to an inexpensive community college. But now I have a year's worth of credits that may not all transfer, and I've made friends here at Leviathan, so I feel stuck. Is there any way you can spread out the payments? Norma lied again. I just found a technicality that forgives ex-scholarship athletes tuition for four years. Congratulations. At that moment, Norma's boss, who had been hiding within earshot, burst in along with a police officer. Norma, I can't believe you stole from the university. She retorted, the university steals from its students, selling a defective, exorbitant product to thousands of students every year. I just established a return policy. Nevertheless, the officer handcuffed Norma and took her away. Norma never felt prouder. The next story is called Unhinged. On March 11, 2011, in his cottage on coastal Sendai, Japan, old Hitoshi was, as usual, sorting his postage stamps. To minimize touching them, he had placed each in priority order in a small glass tower. Each time he wanted to review one, he pushed a button and the next one was released. He bought only mint, never hinged stamps, but additionally they had to be color precisely as in the catalog, no fading and of course no stains. Crisp printing, any waviness is caused by the stamp having been printed using worn plates. No creases, no inclusions in the paper stock, equal sized margins. All perforations intact, each of equal length, none bent. No dents in the stamp, for example, from the perforation machine. And perfect gum, fully and evenly covering the stamp's back. Hitoshi estimated that he had evaluated 300,000 stamps. He rarely touched a stamp with his fingers to avoid skin oils touching the stamps and increasing the risk of creasing a corner. Instead, he used special stamp tongs. 
while tongs were available for a few dollars, he spent $300 for a custom-made one that perfectly fit his fingers. The inside was polished with ultra-fine steel wool and then plated in medical-quality stainless steel to ensure smoothness. Hitoshi was as careful with everything. Because Japan is subject to earthquakes, everything was quake-proof down to each cup in his cupboard, which were spring-attached to the wall. Because he hated noise, he triple-glazed his windows and soundproofed his house using special material he imported from Germany. Suddenly, his normally pacific dog, his old dog, Daisuke, which means great helper, poured his arthritic paw against Hitoshi. Moments later, the cottage started to shake, scattering all the stamps onto the floor. Hitoshi glanced at the stamp tower, but decided to put Daisuke on a leash, and they limped under the table. When the shaking stopped, Hitoshi crept from the bed, smoothed the comforter, and released Daisuke from the leash. He returned to his stamps and methodically began replacing them in priority order. Minutes later, Daisuke limped toward the window, more quickly than usual, barking at the curtain. Hitoshi rose from his table so that the stamps wouldn't be disturbed and tiptoed to the window, careful not to step on a crack between the floor tiles. He drew back the curtain panel to see a tsunami wave just yards from his house. He'd have only seconds before it invaded. That moved even deliberative Hitoshi into action. He raised the first of his 17 four-inch thick stamp albums to the highest shelf, but then the wall of water crashed the door and swept Hitoshi, Daisuke, and the stamp tower to the floor. The next victims were the albums, filled with thousands of perfect stamps, each protected by its own plastic sleeve. Finally, it stopped and the water started to drain. Hitoshi could merely stare, and then Daisuke groaned. He petted her, tried to stop the convulsions, but they wouldn't. Hitoshi tried to phone the vet, but the tsunami had knocked out phone service. He put Daisuke on a leash, but she wouldn't move, so he carried the 15-pound dog into the car, but the waterlogged vehicle would not start. Hitoshi tried to get her to walk with him toward the vet's office a mile away, but Daisuke would not move, so Hitoshi carried the still-convulsing dog. Every half-minute old Hitoshi would have to stop, put Daisuke down, and try to get her to walk, but to no avail. After a half-mile, Daisuke died. Hitoshi stared at his only friend, cried, turned around, and trudged back toward his cottage. There, he addressed, unsorted, a handful at a time, his now-damaged stamps to the people who'd still value them, his beginning stamp collector customers. Then, with unusual speed, he strode to his medicine cabinet, not caring whether he stepped on a gap between the tiles, and opened the bottle of the OCD medication he had heretofore refused to take. Then he began cleaning his cottage just adequately. The next story is called A Person of Substance. It was not surprising that Letitia, who was born weighing 10.7 pounds, would at age 15 weigh 205. Contrary to the stereotype of teens being mean, most of her peers were careful, never calling her fat. A couple of kids called her what some fat acceptance activists suggest, a person of substance. But privately, Letitia considered herself a pig. That was even though she ate less than one might think. Yes, occasionally in frustration with her self-hatred and lack of friends, let alone flirtations, she would overeat, but that didn't explain her obesity, at least not fully. Like many teens, in an attempt to form an identity, she started getting tattoos. People politely praised them, as we often do when somebody does something edgy. Letitia had rarely been praised, which motivated her to get more tattoos until she had covered both arms. Letitia tried diets, but yo-yoed. 
Shopping at Lane Bryant at age 16, I hate it. She began eating more moderately. Fat acceptance feels wrong, but I don't feel I have a choice. Her replacing weight loss efforts with moderate eating allowed her to turn her focus to other things. Notably, she loved singing, but hadn't allowed herself to get serious about it because she felt, as a pig, she didn't deserve to. But now she took singing lessons and, with her teacher's encouragement, sang at a karaoke bar. At first, her voice kept cracking, but eventually sounded good and got applause. I've never been applauded about anything. That gave Letitia the confidence to pursue a career. She was never good at school, not because of psychological issues, but because she found school hard. So after graduating from high school, Letitia took a job at Lane Bryan as a sales clerk specializing in younger customers. She did well, and within a year received two promotions, to assistant store manager and then associate store manager. All in all, Letitia feels she's done okay. The next story is Hilda the Hypocrite. In third grade, Hilda volunteered to lead her class's recycling drive. She didn't do it because she cared about the environment. She did it because she liked being in charge of something. She gave a speech about how recycling can save the earth and kicked off the campaign by ceremoniously emptying her desk's excess papers into the recycling bin, a vivid and public but easy way to show her, quote, commitment. That made some kids feel guilty if they threw even a tissue into the garbage can rather than into the recycling bin. Little did they know that at home, because Hilda's apartment house's recycling bin was a few steps further than was the garbage bin, she'd usually toss her family's recycling into the garbage. In Hilda's high school history class, she gave an oral report on the importance of diversity. She dug up stories of people of color being shut out and of work groups benefiting from diversity. But when she became student body vice president, which allowed her to pick three student senators, she chose three friends of her race and gender. After college, Hilda took a job at an environmental nonprofit. Again, her motive wasn't to help the environment, but so she could tell her friends she was working for an environmental nonprofit. When she became her work group's project lead, she stressed the importance of teamwork, but in practice, she rarely pulled her weight. Yet when her boss wanted pay raises to be equal for everyone in the group, she argued that she should get more because she was the project lead. As testimony to her hypocrisy about the environment, in a Bible study class, as a Catholic, she spoke against abortion. But it's tough to be an environmentalist and anti-abortion. Overpopulation is a leading cause of environmental degradation. Besides, she herself had an abortion. When teaching Sunday school, Hilda urged her students to turn the other cheek even when the other person is wrong. Yet when driving, even when returning home from teaching Sunday school, Hilda often gave the finger to someone who cut her off, and then she tailgated him. On Hilda's deathbed, she urged her family to work to support the environment, to help the poor, and to fight for the right to life. Tearfully, her family pledged to do so. The next story is called A COVID Christmas Story. After Scrooge's transformation because of the three ghosts, Christmas past, present, and future, he stayed good for a while. He went beyond buying Christmas turkeys. He embodied the Christmas spirit all year long. He even became a whiz on the computer so he could help nonprofits with their fundraising. And so when Scrooge finally died, God decided to allow him to pass the pearly gates and enter heaven on a provisional permit. And Scrooge was on his best behavior for a few days, and so the loving God granted him permanent status. He would live in heaven for eternity. But eternity is a long time, and so at some point, Scrooge got bored with heaven's preternatural goodness all the constant kindness, all the chipper chirping, all the angelic action. The negativity in his DNA had to express himself. Scrooge muttered, heaven is fucking boring. 
The first obvious manifestation of his curmudgeonly self occurred when he was decorating the celestial Christmas tree. Instead of shiny red and green balls, he attached radishes and Brussels sprouts. Then he thought, Christmas presents for all the good girls and boys? Ha! Even bad kids get presents. Great inflation. They deserve a lump of coal. But mere thoughts soon bored Scrooge. His addiction to negativity required an ever bigger dose. So he got an idea. He, quote, prayed to God, Lord, you granted me redemption and the talent for computers. I could serve you better on earth, at least for today. It's Christmas Eve. With COVID, poor Santa and the reindeer having to visit all those houses, it's a super spreader event. Will you allow me to help Santa work with Amazon Prime to automate the delivery of Christmas presents just for today? And the loving God waved his mighty hand and beamed Scrooge to the North Pole, where Santa was hitching his full car to the sleigh of reindeer. Scrooge scowled at Santa and turned to the reindeer. Don't you realize how Santa has screwed you all these years, yoking you, forcing you to do the impossible, frantically churning your legs all the way around the world? And for what? So you can fly your slave master around the planet, descend to each and every house, and then struggle to take off again? And your pay? Kibble! Tonight you should say enough is enough and go on strike. The reindeer turned to the union rep, Vixen, who thought for a moment and then yelled with hoof raised in a fist, Strike! And all the reindeer followed their leader. Strike! 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 Suddenly there was a flash of lightning and all the reindeer were turned into elves and beamed into Santa's comfy, warm workshop. Who replaced the reindeer? Scrooge, now yoked to the cart. And while God learned his lesson and kept Scrooge on a short leash, even God couldn't keep Scrooge from wishing he could give some kids lumps of coal. The final story is called My Last Concert. In the wings, Sam could hear the concertmaster tuning up the orchestra. Damn, my hand is shaking more than usual. It's a bad Parkinson's day. Plus, it's my last concert. I'm nervous. Glad I decided on the Grieg, but with these hands, nothing is easy. Sam had been a concert pianist his whole life. At age 11, he finished fourth in the Midwest Regional Young Artists Competition, and now at 83, he's performed 65 concerts, including one with the Kansas City Symphony. He thought, all right, that was just the Kansas City Symphony Summer Festival when lots of the A players were on vacation, but still. Somehow I wish my ex-wife were here. How could she have dumped me? Still wish she were here tonight. Do I play it safe? A lot of note mistakes would make the audience think I stayed at it too long, like those star baseball players who would rather hit 200 than retire. Or do I go for a home run, a chance at a write-up in the Kansas City Star? Roseman finishes with a flourish. The conductor gave Sam a forced smile, and he strode on stage. This is it. Deep breaths, deep breaths. Damn, my hands are shaking more. I'm taking too long. i got to get out there. Stand up straight. Old man hunch. Stride. Don't shuffle. But Sam could only manage to plod on stage. He hung onto the piano with one hand as he took a modest head bow. If I try for a full bow, I could fall. And he sat down at the piano. I've had this moment so many times, but this feels different. Sam used his old trick of adjusting the seat up and then back down again, not because it needed adjusting, but to buy a little more time to ground himself before the moment of truth. And Sam began, and he took every not-crazy risk he could. And most of the time he won. Yes, his boldness caused a few note mistakes, but only the ignorant or mean-spirited could criticize his exciting performance. It was inspiring at any age, but for an 83-year-old with advanced Parkinson's, it gives me the chills just to write about it. And yes, 
Sam got not just the usual obligatory extended applause, bestowed as much to protest classical music's dying popularity as to acknowledge the performer, but fervent applause, and then, yes, a standing ovation. Not a charity ovation, a heartfelt one. And Sam, who usually was too shy to really look at the applauding audience as though stared, would stare at the back wall, soaked in the smiling standing people. Then he sighed and plodded off stage for what he thought was the last time. Sam shuffled into his dressing room, closed the door, and dropped into a chair. I survived. I didn't embarrass myself, but I can't go to the reception. That's like a retirement party where everyone tries to make light of it being the beginning of the end. My end. Then there was a knock on the door. Daddy? His daughter opened the door and gushed. You were amazing. You really were amazing. Come on, they're all waiting for you. Sam knew there was no avoiding it, so he trudged downstairs. When he arrived, the chatter morphed into applause. He thought, I know I have to say something, but I'll make it short. No one likes long speeches and nothing ungracious. I should be a good boy. But he couldn't resist saying what he really felt. Honestly, I can't stand the thought that this will be my last performance. And he teared up. A four-year-old toddled up to him. Do you want to play in my class? And Sam Roseman went on to play more concerts than he ever had in his life, in preschools and elementary schools, first just locally, then around the country. He never got paid, indeed had to pay all his travel expenses, but didn't begrudge it. I can't think of a better way to spend my money than to teach young kids to love classical music and that old people aren't necessarily irrelevant. Anyway, those are my 10 little short, short stories. The collection is called Soloists, unpublished at this point. In any event, I do thank you for watching or listening if you're listening to this on the podcast. I always welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments and especially like it if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I'm flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel, which usually consists of my self-help advice, but I do intersperse my writing, fiction, non-fiction, and playing on the piano. I'm Marty Nemco. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Marty Nemco, his email address is nmenko at comcast.net. How to Do Life is produced by Marty Nemco. Post-production, Terry Rouse. Music from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening.